Welcome back to Season 2 of the Prairie Pod. We are still so excited about it, and we hope you're excited, too. I'm Megan Bennett, Regional Ecologist with the Department of Natural Resources, and I'm here with my excellent co-host... Jessica Peterson. I am the Invertebrate Ecologist with the Minnesota Biological Survey for the DNR here in the central office today. And we have a wonderful guest on today to talk to us about Native Prairie Bank Easement Program. Rhett, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Rhett Johnson. I'm the uh, Southern Region uh, Prairie Private Land Specialist. Prairie Private Land Specialist. Have you practiced saying that 20 times fast in a row? Uh, no, but it wouldn't be a bad idea, I suppose. <laughs> just, just so when you're handing out your business card, you can do it really speedily. Prairie Private Land Specialist, Rhett Johnson, at your service. I imagine that's how you introduce yourself to landowners. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, today's <laughs> podcast, we are going to talk about Native Prairie Bank Easement Program, which is one of Rhett's primary job duties. But before we jump in, we always like to start the podcast with a little chit-chat. And today what we're going to talk about is something very depressing. It is this New York Times Magazine article that came out, and it is entitled the insect apocalypse is here it's here right now so full disclosure Jess sent this to me earlier to read and so it was published in 2018 and it's a pretty good synthesis of what we know about insects Jess, walk us through some of the highlights of this because it's it's pretty long but it's worth it like it's definitely worth the read it's 11 pages but take us through the highlights yeah, so it is long. It's going to take you a while. You're going to need a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, whatever suits your fancy. Some snacks. Don't forget some snacks when you're sitting down to read this. You a know, cookie. You're going to need a cookie. A cookie. You're going, to need, you're going to need a cookie or a brownie. Megan read it in the morning. You know, whatever works best for your schedule, you're going to want to read this. Um, it talks about, goes kind of steps through all the different um, major articles, scientific articles that have been published recently, and kind of walks you through them. Um, there's one from Germany. There's one um, from Central America. There, there's several that are all showing very similar trends about insect declines. And one of the things that I do when I read these kind of articles is I try to think about the differences in what they're measuring. So whether you can measure decline in a lot of different ways, you can measure it. I kind of think of three different ways that we, we're starting to think about insect declines. You can measure the decline in their range. So rusty patch bumblebee is a good example of that, although we had a lot of people who have been finding rusty patch bumblebee here in Minnesota in the last couple of years. Um, the range is really constricted compared to the historic range. We can also think about declines in richness, so the number of species. And we can also think about declines in abundance. And a lot of what they talk about in this paper is declines in abundance. So one, one of the things that's really great about this paper is that it, it kind of balances this, this negativity that Megan was talking about, you know, thinking about climate change and all the different, different factors that might be affecting insects. Um, but then it also brings out the good, it talks about ways that we can help or things that we can do to help document insect abundance or richness um, or the or the distribution. The pictures are really great too. So if you're reading this, you might want to read it on like a computer instead of your, just your little phone. Because <laughs> you got to get the whole, 
you gotta get the whole experience. There's one of a bee, it, like exploding like an atom yeah. bomb, yeah. which is pretty uh, colorful. Colorful. I want to yeah. read. Um, just Jess is talking about declines, and I just want to quote a couple of things from the paper, just so that you understand what we're talking about when we say declines. So in this one, it says Krefeld entomologists confirmed that the total number of insects caught in one nature reserve was nearly 80% lower than the same spot in 1989. 80%. Like, that's not just a decline. That's an apocalypse. Yeah, that's a lot. See how I brought the title in there, Jess? Aren't you proud of me? Um, The other quote, because we're all about diversity on the podcast, my favorite quote probably from the whole article is where it talks about... uh, there's an insect ecologist, Scott Hoffman Black, and he says, we worry about saving the grizzly bear, but where is the grizzly without the bee that pollinates the berries it eats or the flies that sustain baby salmon? Where, for that matter, are we? And so it kind of brings back this whole point, right, that everything is interconnected. This is a prairie pod. We're talking about prairies, but lots, I hope you learn from season one, and we hope you keep learning as we move through season two that everything's interconnected and everything's playing a role. It's not just one part that makes a prairie it's many yeah insects play a huge role in our ecosystems we can think about and and the article does a really good job of describing this we can think about um, insects as food for things like fish and birds we know that a lot of animals need insects to survive and so one of the reasons we might be seeing declines in those critters is because of a decline in insects insects are kind of this fundamental level. Maybe they're the canaries in the coal mine. Um, And we need to be doing a better job of monitoring them. So that's in part my job is to think about monitoring of insects. Um, And I do that a lot uh, because we don't, we don't, we aren't doing a great job. This article describes how we need to be doing a better job of monitoring for insects. It's really, really hard to do because we don't have this baseline information in a lot of cases. We don't even know the identity of these guys. But um, we got to start somewhere. And it talks about, I think we were talking about this earlier, and you were saying how the article and a lot of your work, too, talks about the importance of citizen scientists and how the amount of what we don't know is so much. And so we're going to have to rely on citizens and other folks who have an interest in insects to try to help us tally some of this data or collect some of this data and so luckily in Minnesota we're really blessed and we have some awesome citizen scientists who are already in partnership with the DNR and with other groups trying to collect data and to segue right into today's topic those citizen scientists happen to be doing some of their work on (gasps) native prairie banks see how I just button that up all together that was good I'm really proud of myself for that. (laughs) So, Rhett, this brings us right into today's topic. We're going to jump in. Can you tell us a little bit, what is a Native Prairie Bank easement program? Like, what is the program about? Well, the Native Prairie Bank is a program that protects remnant native grasslands through permanent easements. Uh, It was approved by the Minnesota statute in 1986, and Minnesota statutes direct the program. Uh, interested landowners can choose to retain certain rights, such as grazing and haying, but they cannot break the sod or build on the property. Lands in the Native Prairie Bank are still owned by private citizens, but they are considered DNR-administered lands, so we can help landowners with management projects. And it should be noted that Prairie Bank properties are not open to public hunting, though landowners and those they allow can still hunt them. And uh, the Prairie Bank is a competitive program, so higher-ranking properties are prioritized for, for uh, easements. 
It's really important. Those are those are really good first level things that we should know about native prairie engagement. So, Rhett, tell us a little bit about why why should we care? Why should we be protecting native prairie on private lands? Well, the prairie once covered about a third of Minnesota and between 21 and 35 percent of North America, depending on what you consider prairie. Uh, but today, there's only one to two percent left in Minnesota and only about five percent in the U.S. And many people consider temperate grasslands to be the most endangered ecosystem on the planet. The prairies are really very fascinating ecosystems with an incredible diversity of life. They also contribute to clean water and aquifer recharge, and they are a sink for atmospheric carbon. Okay, so they have... you said a sink for carbon. You know I have to interrupt you here. What you talking about, man? Because when you say sink, you know what I'm thinking about. It's almost the end of the day. I'm thinking about my kitchen sink. I'm thinking about making some dinner. <laughs> so tell me what you mean when you say carbon sink. Well, the uh, the prairies, you know, what you see above ground in the prairie is just a little bit of what's actually there. What's below ground in prairies is every bit as important. And um, in in most prairies, there's a lot more biomass below ground than there's above ground. And actually a lot more diversity below ground than above ground with all the insects and nematodes and mites and such. And uh, prairies are, are dominated by perennial uh, uh, perennial grasses and uh and forbs, uh, wildflowers, and they have a lot of root mass underground, and especially grasses, they, they're continually uh, regrowing roots, and roots are dying, and new roots are growing, so all that root growth underground uh, is taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil. That's also why over over many, many, many years, the, the prairie soils developed into this really rich mollic soil that they have today. And when you say rich mollic soil, what you're saying is black earth man those rich yep. black earth soil rich black so, earth oh, gosh i love prairie soil it smells good i think we said that before but i'm just going to mention it again prairie soil smells alive it smells delicious just shaking her head at me but she knows that it's the truth so other than its smell why would a landowner enroll in prairie bank well, there's actually a lot of different reasons that landowners would be interested in enrolling in the program. Uh, one is financial. It's a pretty good payment, and if the landowner is using the land for grazing or hunting or haying or something like that, it's a way they can get some extra income without really changing how they're using their land already. Uh, some landowners are very strongly conservation-minded and want to ensure the prairies around for future generations to enjoy. And along with that, a lot of ranchers, um, they want to see the grass stay on the landscape. They want, to see, they want to see the ranching lifestyle persist. And then another common reason people enroll is to get help with management, um, especially landowners that are maybe getting a little bit older and can't do quite as much work on their own anymore and just want some help with, with, uh, with managing their lands. That's great. So how do you find these people, or how do these people find you? you you've got to sign these agreements with private landowners. How do they get to you? Well, sometimes they contact me directly. They might see something on the Internet or hear something from their neighbors about, about uh, easement programs, and, and they just want to kind of know what the potential is for their property. But a lot of times uh, partners kind of put me in contact with, with uh uh, prairie owners. The DNR Wildlife Division, the Minnesota Biological Survey, uh, the Nature Conservancy, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and local soil and water conservation districts are great partners that send a lot of people my way. And I also make uh, take the initiative to make contact with landowners when I know they've got really high quality prairie that might might fit the program. I love that because you basically just listed the bulk of the prairie plan partnership. And so that's when we talk about prairie, 
all these things happen because of all these partnerships that are working together. And you just like listed all one way that that works is that we're helping to get native prairie protected. I love it. So, okay, let's pretend I own some land. I don't. <laughs> if I did, how would I know that I qualified for a prairie bank? Well, it needs to be primarily unbroken prairie and dominated by native prairie plant species. Um, it is a competitive program, so when we're looking at sites, we look at the quality of the remnant, the size of the prairie, uh, occurrence or habitat for rare species, where it's located relative to other prairie areas, and uh, potential for management. So um, these are some of the things we look at as far as whether it will qualify. But the primary thing is it needs to be mostly unbroken prairie and dominated by native prairie plant species. Okay, but you say unbroken prairie. So how do you know? Do you just have like a magic ret barometer that when you go out to a site and you just step onto it, you're like, oh, native prairie. Like how, do, I mean, how does it work, Rhett? Tell me, what are we looking well, at? Well, <clears throat> actually sometimes it does work that way. Sometimes you're just looking and you just know, but it really comes down to the species that are present. Um, <laughs> some plant some plant species just, they won't persist under certain certain kinds of disturbance or if, if it's been broken, they just, you won't see them there. So really look for, look the plants and uh, the, the mix of plants that are there and especially looking for some indicators of quality quality habitat. I also look at, you know, take a bigger picture too and, and use geographical information system uh, data to, to look at historical aerial photos and, and, and uh, the LIDAR, the high resolution um, elevation data, uh, to look for signs of, of it being broken in the past. So Rhett, you're a, you're a fabulous botanist. Do you only go out in the summer, or is this a year-round job? I'm going a little off script here, so I apologize <laughs> to my colleagues, but I got I got lots of questions. How do you, how do you do this in the summer versus the winter? You just sit at home and knit during the winter. What, what, tell me a little <laughs> you, bit about you. Make your a new vest during the winter. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yep, that's where I that's where I uh, sew up my vest. Um, <laughs> No, and you can you can tell some things in the winter, especially the the native grasses stand out. They have kind of a little bit of a different color, kind of a pinkish orange color that stands out. But then a lot of a lot of native species persist through the winter. Some of the, the hardier ones, like the goldenrods and and uh, sunflowers and such, um, and the blazing stars. So some there are a lot of things that you can tell in the winter. But ideally, though, it, you know, it's getting out there in the early summer to to late summer and and see the plants when they're in flower. So, you know, a lot, you, you can see, you can tell a lot of stuff at this time of year, but you also miss a lot, so. Awesome. So why this, we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, there's other easement programs. Use Fish and Wildlife Service has an easement program. There's, there's several others. Why should I choose this easement program or over another? Or what are the, the pros and cons of the various ones? How do you decide? Well, a lot of the easements are, are fairly similar, but <clears throat> they differ in the details. Really, the right easement depends on, on the property and what the landowner desires for the future. So uh, sometimes, you know, the landowner's desires or the property just doesn't really fit the Native Prairie Bank program, and uh, so then we look for other options for landowners. So as you said, there's a lot of different options out there, and it's, it's finding the right fit both for the land and for the landowner. That's where you're working with partners, too, to figure out, yeah. to have yep. that conversation about what you think. Like, you're working with the landowner to ask them what they want, but then kind of the programmatic discussion of what's really the best fit for them, that might happen with the partnership. Right, right. And especially, you know, if there's, if a landowner has a property that's right adjacent to DNR land, um, 
you know, the, the Prairie Bank program might be a better fit than if the property was right next to Fish and Wildlife Service land, in which case a Fish and Wildlife Service easement might be a little bit better fit just because they're right there and able to, you know, able to coordinate efforts a little bit better. So, yeah, it really, it comes down to the, both the land and the landowner. I like that. That's a good quote. Comes down to the land and the landowner. And I just want to point out that if we're talking about DNR lands or U.S. Fish and Wildlife, not with an easement on it, but regular waterfowl production areas, those are your public lands. So they just happen to be administered by those agencies. So they're really your lands, just to be clear. So a little bit ago, you mentioned that you can help landowners with management projects. What kind of help do you give them? Are you just like, you can do it, man. You're doing great at removing those invasive species. Or are you giving them actual technical, physical help? Uh, well, both, actually. You know, I would give them a, you know, kudos for, for the efforts that they do. But we can help with project planning from determining the best management practices to lining up contractors. Uh, we can also help financially for projects that fit in with the goals we have for maintaining or improving prairie health. Um, we also write prairie stewardship plans for private landowners. Uh, these are comprehensive plans that look at a site's needs and how to achieve management goals over time. Um, We've written a lot of prairie stewardship plans for prairie bank properties, but we've also done quite a few for non-prairie bank landowners who have prairie that they want to uh, they want to maintain the health of. Um, on the actual prairie bank lands, we can usually completely fund the projects that we that we come up with, um, though the landowners of, often lend a hand. For example, they might help us by cutting some fire breaks or checking the effectiveness of some of the invasive species treatments we do, just to kind of let us know if we're getting ahead of stuff. So. Uh, Generally, for management, we find what works best is if we have landowners that can kind of help us out a little bit here and there, and then we can we can kind of take care of the, the big projects and, and do the big work. And then if the landowners can kind of follow up and kind of help us out with the follow-up, it works really well for everybody. So we talk on the podcast about um, prairie reconstructions quite a bit. It sounds like from the name of the program that this is only referring to native prairie bank, or native prairie, native prairie bank easements. Is this program exclusive to, to native prairie? Um, yeah, it's prim the prairie bank is primarily for protecting native prairie, though we can include some other plant communities or restore prairie to kind of even out boundaries and shield the remnant native prairie communities, kind of what we call like an ecological buffer around the, the native communities. Um, <clears throat> and when they're part of the, of the prairie landscape, we consider plant communities such as rock outcrops, uh, calcareous fens, wet meadows, um, and savannas to be, to be native prairie because they're they're part of that larger landscape so they kind of fit in there um, but it uh, you know it, it is a program for protecting native prairie so we can take in some non-prairie uh, you know cropland to restore or old CRP or something but um, it's still it has to be primarily native prairie and if we take other land in it has to be contributing to the protection of the native prairie so I know what type of land you're looking for, but how how much of my land can I enroll? Because I want to enroll it all. I want to enroll all my prairie. I want to protect it. How can I do that? Can I do um, that? You can enroll as much as is native prairie. There's no maximum size, but uh, depending on the year, we may be limited in as far as funding goes. So a lot of these folks you're working with are conservation-minded kind of individuals. They might already have an easement on the property like CRP. Can you still enroll in Native Prairie Bank? 
Yeah, if the property has some CRP and there's sufficient native prairie to go along with it, you could enroll some CRP. Um, and we often take in CRP along with native prairie to even out boundaries and, and like I said, to give a protective buffer to the native plant community. Um, and if there is CRP after enrolling in the native prairie bank, you might not be able, you would not be able to re-enroll it in CRP, but you can continue to receive payments until the current CRP contract expires. Uh, if the property is if there's some property already in a permanent easement program, we cannot pay for putting Prairie Bank easement on the property, but a, a landowner could donate those acres to be included in the native Prairie Bank easement. And this does happen occasionally. Uh, for example, if there's a large, like say an 80 acre prairie area that um, maybe has 10 acres of rim uh, included with it in the middle of it or something, the landowner could donate that those rim acres to the Prairie Bank, uh, which really doesn't change the protection on the land, but it does allow the DNR to uh, to work on that land is makes it it makes it DNR administered land that way, so so yeah we can take in some CRP or RIM which is reinvested Minnesota properties along with the native prairie. That means that we can put DNR effort into managing that land. Yep. So you talked about talk to me a little bit about haying and grazing. So I know that I it's not public property just because I have an easement on it. It's still native prairie and I can retain my rights. But what about my haying and grazing rights? Can I still do that? Yes, yes. Uh, landowners can retain grazing, haying, or seed harvest rights. Uh, it does reduce the, the easement payment a little bit, but uh, they, if that's what the land is being used for and they want to continue to do that in the future, they can retain the right, those rights. Uh, we do like landowners to graze or hay responsibly, and we have some standards for these practices. For example, landowners that retain the right to hay, they need to leave a portion of it unhayed each year, and that that gives winter cover for birds and such, and then also, you know, especially a lot of the um, insects that overwinter in the stems of grasses or, or wildflowers, it gives them a place to uh, have some kind of refuge. So, so we do have some standards for the management practices, but uh, generally speaking, um, most landowners I've worked with, they're already doing something like that anyway, as far as grazing responsibly or hanging responsibly. Yay for insects. <laughs> It's not an apocalypse on a prairie bank, people. <laughs> it's not. They're they're really beautiful. Uh, I mean, I they aren't public land, but Rhett's you know taking us out to several with the landowner permission, and I they're I'm always amazed um, at how, at how how beautiful they are. Um, so it's a wonderful program. How does this get funded? Well, right now our program is primarily funded through the LCCMR or Environmental Natural Resources Trust Fund, which is the lottery fund, and also through the Outdoor Heritage Fund, which is the Clean Water, Land, and Legacy Act. So that's that's primarily what funds our, our uh, program at right now. And that's that voluntary sales tax that the people of Minnesota yep. voted yep. for at a very high rate so that it allows us to do great work like this, which goes right back into what it means to be a Minnesota where we get to live in the state rich in natural resources because so many of us like to do so many things that are natural resource related. It's not just about those lakes. We got prairie too. Okay, sorry. The lakes are great. Um, Rhett, well, talk to it me contributes a little bit quality, about quality. how much help you get with this program. <laughs> Is it just you out there with your fabulous vest of plenty, or do you have, I mean, are there other people out there helping you also wearing vests? Um, yeah, I, I, this is definitely a team effort. So the Native Prairie Bank is primarily run through the Scientific and Natural Area Program of the DNR, <laughs> but we get a lot of help from a lot of other divisions in the DNR. For example, the DNR 
uh, Division of Lands and Minerals is, is a big partner, uh, the Wildlife Division, the Minnesota Biological Survey, and a lot of partners from both other DNR and other entities um, help out. So it's, it's definitely a team effort. There's a lot of people involved in it. So, and the team works really well together. And everything goes better when partnership is happening. We got to clue people Absolutely. in because I keep mentioning your magical vests. So I think huh. at this moment we need to probably tell people what we're talking about. So for those of you who have never been to the field with Rhett, first of all, I highly recommend it because you're going to learn a lot about plants when you're there because he's, as Jess said earlier, a fabulous botanist. So you're going to learn a lot of things, but also you're going to benefit from the amount of things that are in his vest. So... Rhett, you wear this. Is it camo on just one side, or is it all camo? It's a it's a turkey hunting vest. It's got okay. a lot of pockets and and big pockets. So yeah. Big and what pockets. what do you normally carry in there? Don't you? Earlier we were chatting. Didn't you say you had the flora of North America in there? Uh, well, I, I carry uh, actually usually it's Gleason and Cronquist. Um, so that's that's what I usually carry. But then I've got usually a couple notebooks and other stuff, and uh, usually a, a raincoat, a couple bottles of water, blood spray, <laughs> head net, pocket knife, These usually are a trowel. Just a few of the things in his vest. A couple compasses, <laughs> uh, bug spray, um, sunscreen, a uh, couple you, bandanas. Wait, is it travel size sunscreen or is it like the big full bottle? I want to. Uh, it's a smaller. It's a smaller bottle. So yeah, <laughs> try to come. Try to come prepared. So. Yep. So you also have in there your magical fence crosser, which I, a lot of times when we're out in the prairie, sometimes we encounter barbed wire fences, and it's always a struggle. Are you going to go over it? Or are you going to go under it? And those of us who are vertically challenged, if you will, like myself, we tend to just roll under it and hope for the best that we're going to roll, and we just imagine that we're real small and real flat to the ground. But we approached this barbed wire fence in the field one day with Rhett, and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I really just wait a minute. And out of his magical vest, he pops. What is what is it made out of, Rhett? What is this? It's it's an old of? it's an old piece of fire hose that I just cut a cut a cut a slice down the side so it can kind of fit over as a sheath over the barbed wire. <laughs> so, see, it's industrious too. Recycling is what Rhett's doing. So he just like you pop this thing over the barbed wire, and then everybody can just cross regardless of how tall your legs are or long your legs are it's fantastic there's lots of benefits from going to the field with uh Rhett's vest but i learned earlier too that you're not going to share any of the snacks that are in your vest with anyone those are just for you yep those are Rhett snacks <laughs> <laughs> do they have a label on them that's just um, no but but they're in my pocket so i don't think i have to worry about anybody else eating them <laughs> Okay, Given that we've never on, seen but I just wanted to clue people snacks. in because we keep mentioning it, and so I wanted people to understand the majesty that is your vest. So t tell us a little bit, and I know we're kind of running out of time for this part of the segment, as we often do, because we just get to laughing and chatting, but what are some of your favorite experiences working with landowners in this <clears> program? Well, a lot of landowners have really great stories that show they have a deep connection and that they really love their land. Um <clears throat> One lander told me. One landowner told me how his ancestors settled where they did because the the tall hills reminded them of Norway, and how the original land surveyors that were going through the area they set up a big tower on the highest hill because they could see it from so far away. They could use it as a landmark for surveying the region. And there were actually still some uh, some cement like uh, pillars that they had used 
when they set up that tower, so that was kind of cool. Uh, another landowner talked about playing in the hills as a kid and swimming in an old pond that was there, and the time his neighbor uh, lost control when he was burning, tra- burning trash and started a wildfire that burned across the prairie and kind of threatened his house. And then another landowner, he told me how when he was kids, he and his siblings had named all the big boulders that were scattered across their pasture, and he pointed out one that... Um, it was a big piece of granite. It was a big granite erratic that had some interesting lines on it. And he said they called that the Christmas tree rock and I could, or the Christmas present rock, and I could see where they got that from. Um, and a lot of landowners show me with really great pride uh, photo albums full of pictures of different plants that they've seen flowering on their prairie or lists of all the plants and animals they've encountered out there. And it's for me, it's really neat, and I really enjoy this because it's, it's like seeing what they find fascinating about their prairies. So, yeah, it's really interesting to hear about their the history of their properties and the strong connection that they have with their prairie lands. I like it. That's good when people are connected. I have a follow-up question about this Christmas tree rock. So you said you could see that, but why? Like, what about it makes it look uh, like it, Christmas it kinda, tree? It's kind of boxy looking, and it sort of the way the the uh, the striations were in the in the rock. It sort of looked like it was like it had had been wrapped up with ribbon, like it had a, had ribbons running around it. So I, I could kind of see where you could come up with it. Yeah, I like it. I like it so much. Oh, it's about that time. Rhett, that is really good information. And we are going to jump to our next segment. Jess, are you ready? Let's science do the literature. Okay, this is the part of the podcast where we are going to recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And I think during this one, we're going to recommend... Oh, or something interesting that you want to find out. So, just kick us off. Yeah, so we've got a lot of good stuff here today. Um, We started off talking about insects, and so just to carry on with that theme, if you read that insect apocalypses here paper or magazine article, if you will, you know, you might might be itching for some more. So they they reference E.O. Wilson in there a bit, I believe, and um, one of the things that kept coming to my mind when I was reading it was um, his book, which I read a long time ago. I won't say how long ago at this point, but um, it's called The Diversity of Life, and I've bought many copies of this book over the years and given it to... um, you know, students and whatnot, folks that might be interested in in the environment. E.O. Wilson is a big supporter of insects and talks in that book so long ago. I don't know when it was published, a long time ago. Um, And talks about what would happen if if the insects disappeared. So it's happening, maybe. It remains to be seen. Um, I I think it's not too late, which is, um, I think, a good part of that insect apocalypse paper is it's not too late. So... um, a long Check time ago to Jeff's uh, 2010, by the way. That's when it was, it published. was not published in 2010. <laughs> it was probably there's republished in 2010. There's no way. That's Yeah, that's a, that's a second edition or something. Uh, so that's a really good, it's a really good introduction book um, uh, to insects in general. Yeah, Wilson, of course, is a big ant guy. Um, so to spin off that, there's a paper by Katie Reeder. Um, and others, Diane Dubinsky was my master's advisor, and Brent Danielson in 2005, titled Factors Affecting Butterfly Use of Filter Strips in Midwestern U.S. And this um, study was actually done in southern Minnesota, in um, Cottonwood County and and other counties around there um, at 
farms where there were filter strips planted at varying widths um, using uh, a lot of Forbes um, for, for that time, 2005 was a while ago. Um, and they found a positive relationship between Forbes and the butterfly community. So even really narrow filter strips were used by butterflies and wider strips were even better, supported a higher diversity of butterflies. Um, as well as larger abundances of the, some of our more habitat-sensitive butterflies that we think about, some of those species that might be on native prairie banks, and then they they find a, a filter strip and can go use it because there's Forbes flowers planted there. So, kind of another good take-home story that we can we can add habitat to this landscape and kind of like Brett was saying, we we think about this as a landscape approach. It's super important to have all these different pieces um, around in the landscape. <coughs> So it's a really good paper. You'll find a link to it on our website. Um, and then the third thing I really want to highlight today is a new tool that was developed by the Natural Capital Project at the University of Minnesota. So you can check out this tool. Again, there'll be a link to it on our website. Um, and the, the name of the article that was kind of describing the tool is Visualizing Environmental Benefits, UMN's New Acquisition Assessment Tool. So what you can do with this tool is you can plug in a you know, either a location or an address uh, of a, a specific site that you're interested in, and then you you go through the tool and it um, uses a, that actual address, creates a report of the environmental benefits, like bird watching, some of the things we were talking about at the beginning um, of the podcast too, pollination, soil carbon, pheasant production, the things we think about that would um, be supported in when we when we protect land. So it goes through and gives you this really great report based on a, a very specific parcel. You know, all these different layers of the in, um, ecosystem services were modeled um, using, using data from Minnesota. So it's this decision-making tool that can be used when looking at, you know, easements or acquisitions in Minnesota. It's really great. Did you plug your house in there, Jess, just to see? What I did not plug my house in there. I, I plugged in a few properties that I know about just to check it out because I was curious. Um, you know, of course, it's it's got its um, quirks and whatnot. It's a model. It's always it's just built on a on a model. So you have to take all of that with a grain of salt. It's not going to be it's not going to be perfect, but it's it's. It's, it's better than nothing when we're thinking about kind of going back to this ranking idea, how do we decide whether or not um, we want to invest in a particular parcel. Um, it's important to have these tools at our disposal. That's really interesting. I encourage you to put your house in there to see what you, uh, <laughs> what you score. <laughs> Two things That's for... before we move on. Fact yeah. checking myself, Jess was absolutely right. 1992 was the yes, original publication ago. date yeah. for E.O. Wilson's The Diversity of Life. Fact check myself. And uh, second thing that I didn't mention about the Insect Apocalypse is Here article is that it gave me my favorite new word of 2019, phantasmagorical. And so, Rhett, more bolder comments for you when you go back to that landowner your goal my new goal for you for the rest of 2019 is to try to find a boulder out there that they can name phantasmagorical because it means like dreamlike or awesome this awesome experience so i want you to name one of those boulders after this I'll, really cool new term i'll work on that <laughs> like that you just humor me and you're just gonna like, sure yeah yeah, yeah. we'll do it because <laughs> you have nothing better to do you're just gonna name some some for me. Okay. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess? 
take a hike. I think I will. It's been a long day. I need to go for a hike. And what better place to do that in some of your awesome, fantastic public lands? So normally during this part of the podcast, we would be highlighting public lands that are either near the topic that we're talking about, like when we covered Laquaparl in season one, we tried to give you some of the awesome public lands in that general area or that are related to the podcast topic. But since today we're talking about native prairie bank easements, and as Rhett mentioned, they are private land. We are not going to highlight those, even though they are certainly fantastic and you're, you do need permission to access them. Instead, we are going to do some of our favorites in and around the Wyndham area. So my favorite, we'll get started, is Expandier Wildlife Management Area. I love this WMA. I just love it. And I think the reason why is because the first time I visited it, it was about three, was it three years ago? What is it? 2019? Holy buckets, math is hard at the end of the day. It was, it was six more, years ago, so double that. that. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I went there, and just, just laughing at me about my math. Yeah, three years ago, six years ago, it all blends together. The point is, it was a beautiful September day. It was one of those clear Minnesota days where the sky is just so blue, summer is reaching into autumn, and you're out there. It was pleasantly warm. The sky looks just right, and there's just prairie cord grass swaying in the wind and there are thousands of sunflowers in bloom behind it thousands of sunflowers it was magical we were out there looking for some rare plants and i just think that it there's nothing better than prairie and just seeing everything in bloom like that i highly recommend going there out in the fall just you recommend going out there in the spring where you might see some of small white lady slippers which happen to be out there it's one of the best examples of music prairie that we have left in the southern part of the state it really is and also has wet prairie out there too sea of flocks once you once you get out there on the slightly drier parts it's absolutely beautiful in spring and that's c-s-e-a not right sea of flocks s-e-a like, of sea of flocks, flocks. <laughs> like seas wild seas of flocks jess what's your pick for today my pick is nearby. You don't have to go too far. Uh, String Lake WPA. Uh, I like it for a variety of reasons. Uh, there's just really beautiful rolling hills in that part. The the String Lake itself is kind of picturesque. Um, it's just across the street from the WPA, the parking lot there. There's um, early in the spring again. There's really nice uh, pasque flower, another early bloom, blooming species up on the ridge tops. Um, you just it, you get a nice view out there. You can see for a long ways, and uh, they've done some nice tree clearing in the last year or so. So I'll be really curious to see how the prairie responds, uh, whether or not the prairie comes back. That's certainly their goal is to rejuvenate the prairie um, by by doing that clearing. It's it's absolutely beautiful, but I will tell you, you got to watch out for turtles. I was out there by myself, and I, I got a little spooked uh, by a large turtle. And we're going to have to ask our guests next week um, about what species that might have been. This thing was huge, and it was rustling down in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something that you normally think that you need to be watching out for when nope. you're on a prairie hike, a giant prairie nope. turtle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what this was. I'm not, I don't know my turtles real well. We'll ask uh, was, Lisa, uh, Jeff, and Carol about that when we get into Minnesota River Reptile Project next week. <laughs> yeah, once I knew what Giant it was, turtles trying to I, I felt a little bit better, but I still thought, you know, what's this thing gonna? What's this thing doing up here on the prairie? 
<laughs> it's it's kind of well, lost. And teaser, we do have some prairie turtles, and so I we're know. gonna learn a little bit about. Well, hopefully, we learn a little bit about that next week. We'll find out. Oh my goodness, Jess, did you say what a WPA is? Oh, a waterfowl, waterfowl production, production area. area. These are lands managed, uh, public lands managed by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, but in that whole area, there's a lot of walk-in access sites. There's um, some new WMAs coming online across the street that we're going to be restoring. Um, it's, it's a it's a beautiful area. A lot of complexes in that area. So it is. So Expandier's in Cottonwood County, and then String Lake is in Jackson County. Now we yeah, would be remiss if we did not turn it over to Rhett now to hear his pick as our special guest on the podcast today. So many prairies, just like when we ask anybody, what's your favorite prairie? They, it is really hard for them to pick just one, but we made him. We made Rhett narrow it down to just one. Rhett, what is your pick for the day? Well, my my pick, if I guess, if I was going to go for a hike in any prairie in Minnesota, um, there's a lot of really beautiful prairies, but my pick would be up actually in, uh, up by Fertile, Minnesota. So on the kind of on the border between uh, Norman County and Polk County up in the northwest. It's Agassiz Dunes Scientific Natural Area. It's a it's an SNA that's managed by and owned by the Nature Conservancy and it's a really beautiful complex of dry prairie and oak savanna with some wetlands here and there. Um, it origin its origin is is the uh, the sand the Sandhill River dumped into the Glacial Lake Agassiz in that area leaving behind a large sand delta and then over many, many, many years, the winds reworked the sand into these beautiful dune complexes. They're covered in in gnarly, twisted uh, bur oak trees that are, you know, these trees are hundreds of years old, but they're only 25 feet tall. They're grown in really dry soil and um, amazing plant diversity out there. And it's also just a fantastic place for, for birding, especially during the spring migration. Um, I don't even know birds, and I was out there and and you know, in an hour, in less than an hour, saw a dozen different warbler species, and I'm not even a birder, so um, just a, a really fantastic. <laughs> and it was place. still exciting. <laughs> it was really exciting, yeah. They're you know really pretty birds, um, so so that's that's pretty neat. There's a lot of really interesting species there, both plants and animals. There's a lot of these uh, sand blowouts that get kind of open sand moving around, and and it's a good place for. Uh, uh, tiger beetles. So there's a lot of a lot of really interesting species that that inhabit those kind of places. So, so yeah, my my pick would be Agassiz Dunes Scientific Natural Area, up by Fertile, Minnesota. So when you're in the field with Rhett, not only do you get a benefit from the vest and all the Mary Poppin type items that come out of it, but you learn an amazing amount about plants. But my favorite part is the geology knowledge. I love talking about geology and thinking about how geology shaped the land. And I, I love that. I love it. I know. Not it's not my specialty, but I like birds. when it's other people's specialty <laughs> and they tell me about it. I like it's fantastic to hear about it. Yeah, I do too. Love it. Oh, Rhett, well, thank you so um, much. I think that is... the way that you describe those twisty oaks in that savanna, we could call that a phantasmagorical place, possibly. <laughs> I, Potentially. I, I would just... go for that. Yep. <laughs> yep. He's on Throw board. Out there. <laughs> Rhett, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on our podcast today. I learned so much more about Native Prairie Bank, and I loved your description of working with landowners. I think that might have been my favorite part. How about you, Jess? Yeah, I loved it. This was definitely one of my favorite episodes thus far. It's been great, really, really great learning about Native Prairie Bank today. 
I well, love thank it. you for well, letting me join you. Well, next week, you can join us for Prairie Tuesday, where we're going to cover everyone's favorite subject. Giant turtles are taking over the... <laughs> no, that's not right. That's not right. We're going to be talking about snakes and skinks. That's skink with an I. And we're going to be joined by some very super awesome biologists, Lisa Galvin Inver, Carol Hall, and Jeff LeClaire. We're going to hear about their work tracking gopher snakes and five-line skinks in the Minnesota River Valley. So it's going to be really exciting. I can't wait to hear all the things that they found. As always, just so you know, you can catch all of the resources that we listed today, including the Take a Hikes and the Let Science section, literature, uh, papers, and books. You can find all of that great information on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. And if you just type in prairie pod into the Google machine, it'll take you right there to our website, and you can see all of those resources tabulated under each episode. So we've had a lot of fun today, like usual. Bye, Jess. See you later. Bye, Rhett. Take care, guys. All right, catch you <laughs> next time on the prairie pod. <laughs> <laughs>